And uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn in there to Romans chapter 1. If you don't, the scripture is printed in your bulletin. It's on page 6. There's a place to take notes on page 7. If you'd like to do that, we're also going to get the scripture up here. We're going to look at Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Because what the Jews did, they looked for signs that showed whether or not God was on 
by looking at your life. And so they would say, Jesus? He was, wasn't he crucified? That's not what happened to saviors. Saviors don't get crucified, right? Actually, crucifixion was a sign of God's judgment. Because if God was with you, you wouldn't have been crucified. And then Paul. Like, Paul, how is this Christianity stuff, how is this gospel stuff working out for you? And there's a point where Paul actually, in great sarcasm and irony, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, Well, I've been beaten countless times, been whipped and scourged five times, beaten with rods three times, once I was stoned, I got drowned deep three times in shipwreck. And so for the Jews of Paul's day, this was not a sign that God was with them. And so they would look at this guy who was preaching, see the, the wounds all over his body, and think, man, this is not a guy who is speaking for God. And so the Jews would hear him preach, and they would roll their eyes. They would roll their eyes. It's important for us to think about that. Because this idea of rolling, the rolling the eyes, what it is, it's, it's cynicism. Cynicism. Cynicism is what causes people to roll their eyes at you when you speak. And I think it wasn't just the first century. It wasn't just Paul who dealt with cynicism. It wasn't Paul who just who dealt with the rolling of the eyes. But we deal with it too, don't we? I, mean, I think actually cynicism is the thing that pushes us most to be ashamed of the gospel. And don't you know this? And I don't think, I mean, most people don't actually physically roll their eyes at you when you talk, but there's this sort of thing that happens. You bring up Jesus, or you talk about something, or you maybe say that God answered prayer, and people kind of, uh, okay, you know, and there's a little bit of a distance. Right? Sometimes people step back. I mean, last night it was amazing. I was at a friend's uh, tattoo salon where a friend did a bunch of artwork to rebuild the salon in South Park. And, um, and so I went there, there was a party, and I was talking to this, this lady, and I was asking her what she does, and she works with sort of at-risk kids um, in a school in Claremont. Um, and I was telling her, this is amazing, like, what you do is so redemptive. You're actually making a difference. You're standing in a gap with these kids that, that people give up on. And uh, then she's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I never thought about that. Like, and uh, she's like, what do you do? I said, oh, well, I'm a pastor. I help people on their spiritual journey. And she just went, oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> huh. So, um, are you a Christian pastor? You know, does anybody else know that? Do any of the religions call their people pastors? And I'm like, no, I think Christians and Romans call them pastors. You know, other religions and rabbis are imams. And, and it was just, she was, and all of a sudden, like, out gosh, all oh, this. What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? And I was sitting there thinking, like, Lord, how can I speak here? Like, she, I mean, she wasn't, she was almost physically rolling around, but it was like, really? Like, how can you possibly believe all this? You know, and that's just, that's not uncommon. It's just not uncommon for all of us. If you want to speak about Jesus, you get cynicism kind of thrown back in your face. There's a really well-developed and deeply rooted cynicism in the secular social righteousness of our culture. Okay? You can learn how to do this, how to put Christians in their place, or really put anybody in their 
place who wants to tell you that they think they're right with something that's true. And, uh, and so uh, it's, it's important for us to understand this. And so I have another definition here. So look at shame. Here's a definition of cynicism. And it's just it's distrust or sneering disbelief. Uh, I like that phrase, sneering disbelief. In the sincerity or integrity of something or someone. Right? Oh, all right. Yeah, you might talk about Jesus, but I know the truth. I know what really goes on inside churches. I know what really goes on inside religions. I really, and so there's this distrust, this sneering disbelief in that something is genuine. And, uh, and I think what's interesting is that in our day and age, cynicism actually makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. It's, it feels wise to be cynical. Okay, because you know, people are cynical. I don't think it's because by nature they're cynical. I'll leave an argument with you about that. I think people are cynical because it keeps them from getting taken advantage of. Right? I mean, it keeps people from being deceived again. You know, most of the time people are cynical when they've been burned and they've heard stories of people who've been burned. And they just don't want to fall for that kind of thing. And so I think we, we struggle. We struggle when people react to Jesus or react to us in our Christianity with this kind of cynicism. And I think it causes us to restrain ourselves. We're not as open, we're not as forthright, we're not as honest about who we are or what we believe or our experiences with God because we're afraid of being shamed, ridiculed, and disapproved of. But what's interesting to me too is if you think about cynicism, it doesn't just come from outside of us. Cynicism isn't just something from outside. Some of us are cynical because our experience of Christianity isn't what we expected it was going to be. Are you with me? I mean, people in our church family who think, man, my marriage sucks. Like, it's awful. Why hasn't Jesus made it better? People who feel like they just want to give up because God didn't come through for them. You know, I prayed and God didn't do anything. I prayed and God said no. I think about people who are afraid to take a chance at helping someone else grow spiritually. Right? Well, I just, I don't think I can help. I couldn't disciple someone else because I'm just not spiritual enough. I know what's inside my heart and God can't do We'll find it hard to forgive others. I mean, this stuff, when we see what's inside of us sometimes, that can give us enough to make us cynical. And that leads us, again, to be ashamed. And so what we need, we need Paul's words. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Right? And so Paul had a way to deal with this temptation. And I think if we understand why Paul wasn't ashamed, it'll give us an opportunity also to deal with the temptation of being ashamed. For Paul, it was the gospel. It was the amazing story of Jesus that kept Paul from getting into cynicism. And so what we're going to see today, I'm going to write something down, we're going to see that the gospel counsels cynicism. Okay? If you write this down, underline, circle, put a box around, scars, you know, happy faces all over, the word counsels. Okay? Because what I didn't say here, what I don't think Paul is saying here, is that the gospel confronts cynicism, or the gospel eliminates cynicism, or the gospel um, invalidates cynicism. 
I think what the gospel does is the gospel counsels cynicism. What do I mean by that? Well, I think the gospel understands cynicism and says to it, that's just, that's not the whole story. Okay, the gospel understands cynicism and says to it, that's not the whole story. And in terms of dealing with cynicism outside of you and inside of you, I think cynics have a point. People who are cynical have a point. They just don't have the whole story. Right? This person I was talking with last night, man, I just kept telling her over and over and over again, yeah, you know what, you're right. That is true about the church. Yeah, you know what, you're right. That is true about Christianity. Yeah, you know what, you're right. That is true. But, but, there's more in the story. There's more to the story. And so the reason Paul doesn't restrain himself in the face of cynicism, verse 16, is because he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Okay? So we're going to look at this first. We're going to see that the gospel, the gospel counsels cynicism first by explaining God's power. Okay? The way the gospel uh, counsels cynicism, it explains God's power. Okay? So what is the gospel? the gospel? The gospel is good news. That's what the word means. Okay? And so the gospel is not laws, but it's news. Okay? You have to get that. You have to help people understand that. That the message of Jesus is not laws, but it's news. It's not things that you have to do you know, it's, that's not what news is. News is not people getting on television and telling you what you have to do. That's not news, right? When you watch the news, you're watching reports on things that have already happened. Okay? And so the gospel isn't laws. The gospel is news. It's an announcement of the news of what God has done in Jesus. Okay? The gospel is that Jesus has become the focus of God's plan to renew the world. In the broadest sense, that's the gospel. That Jesus has become the focus of God's plan to renew the world. That's the gospel. And so the powers in life, both earthly and spiritual, the powers that break this world down, the powers that blacken relationships have been defeated by Jesus. Okay? Now, there is a power in the world that's stronger than sin. It's stronger than selfishness. Jesus is now bringing God's healing into the world. Okay, this is the gospel. This is news. This is something that happened. This is something that happened. And Paul believed that announcing this news brought power. And Paul saw this in practice. City after city after city, when he announced the good news, that there is one God, and this one God is claiming the world as his own through the crucified and risen Jesus, that when Paul announced that, he saw power unleashed. He saw power. This power, it brings salvation. Okay? It's the power of God for salvation. Salvation means total renewal. That's what salvation means. It means total and complete healing and renewal. Making things as good as new. And so salvation means a world that has hope. A world that's rooted spiritually in hearts. It's rooted socially in relationships and in neighborhoods. It's rooted culturally in the marketplace, in your workplace. 
So God's power will stop at nothing less than the salvation and the renewal of the entire world. That's what salvation is. And it's amazing because this is God's promise for the future. Right? God promises that through Jesus, he's going to fix everything. If you read the last chapter of the Bible, it says every eye will be dry, every tear will be dry, and every wrong will be right, every wound will be healed this perfect world that God creates. And so the promises for the future, but there's something amazing that happens when Paul announced this news about Jesus, the future broke into time. As people have heard this announcement, God's future promise began to come true now. It began to come true in the middle of time. When you announce Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord of the world, something Something happens. N.T. Wright says this about this resurrection. He says, The new world which was born when Jesus died and rose again comes to fresh life in the heart, minds, and lifestyles of the listeners. Or at least in some of them. This is what happens. And I have to tell you, this is happening in our church community. The Harbor folks who are here are new life groups. In the last couple of weeks, I've gone to visit our community groups, turning into life groups, and this is happening. As people are sharing their spiritual journeys, people are talking about their experience of God, what God has done up to this point in their lives in the last year. We've watched, we get to see. I mean, as people pray and share with each other, right? and we're seeing married folks who want to give up on their marriage, give it up. See husbands own their sin. Want to make it right. We've seen singles who are in despair because of their singleness, and yet they find in God a reason for hope. And they find their identity goes beyond their relationships. We see people, I mean, this is going on right now. We see people who have given up. You see people who are ready to let go and taking another step forward. Right? We're watching people struggle with sin and not lose hope. And I know this is a reality icon. I Will was telling me a story of, of someone who was new in town and ended up falling on hard times. And there's a family icon around around this guy, providing for his needs, cared for. This is an amazing way shows the power of God to salvation. That's what this is. Paul would say that just as sin has affected every area of our lives, how we think, what we say to you, how we relate to each other, so also salvation affects every area of our lives. How we think, what we say to you, and how we relate to each other. Paul says this power of God for salvation is to everyone who believes. It's to everyone who believes. And so this is the power of salvation, but it's also the power that understands cynicism. Okay, and so how does this power then relate to the cynic? Let me show you. How does the gospel counsel cynicism? With understanding. This is what you can say. You can say, yes, the church isn't perfect. 
There are lots of reasons to organize the church for Christians. Just understand the cynicism. Chances are it's true. And so there's a reason, a logical reason behind a person's cynicism. So just understand it and admit it. How free not to have to defend everything that anybody's ever done in Jesus' name. And to agree with people. And even to say, you know what? I understand what you're saying. I think you're right about what you're talking about. Christians and the church have done all kinds of things. It would make you not want to go there. Last night, I said, you know what? Jesus also agrees with you on your critique of the church. But that's not the whole story. That's the key. Saying, yeah, you know what? You're right. Your cynicism is right, but that's not the whole story. Because there's a real power from God at work in the world. I've experienced it, and I've seen it in the lives of others. Do you understand how that works? Like, I don't need to discredit or disprove your cynicism, but I do want you to know that there's more to the story. That's not the end of the story. There is a real power from God in the world. I've experienced it, and I've seen other people experience it too. Paul says to us, he says this power, if you want to experience this power, it comes to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. And so to believe, what does that mean? Well, it just means to live as though it's true. There's lots of ways to talk about belief, but I think in this context, to believe is to live as though it's true. And so how does this work? How can you experience the power of God? Maybe those of you here aren't Christians. This is how you experience God's power. And for those of you who are Christians, uh, there's an opportunity I mean, for us to go deeper, to experience more of God's power in more areas of our life. And so I'm going to share with you one way that you can learn to experience this kind of power from God for salvation. Okay? There's one way to experience God's power. First, identify an area of life where you want to experience God's power. A relationship, spouse, kids, any relationship to the work environment, to the environment? Is it something you struggle with, an addiction, a bad habit? Where do you want to experience God's power? So identify one area of your life. Second, ask yourself, what would I do in that area of life if I was filled with God's power? So if God's power were to come over me, what would I look like? What would I do in that area of my life? Come up with that answer. And three, tell someone else what you're doing. Tell someone else what you're doing. Tell them where you want God's power and what God's power might look like and what you're going to do to bring about. What do you think you would do if you had this power? You want to involve someone else because I think this supports you. If you don't do this, um, you will... You'll be tempted to be crushed by your own cynicism. Okay? But if you invite somebody else into this process and just let them know, hey, this is the area I'm working on, this is what I think I would do if I had this power, um, I just want you to know they can pray for you, they can help you think through. Even expectations sometimes can be helpful. You know, because the way that God works sometimes isn't, He doesn't just zap us and make us all dead all at once. So often, it's a long, slow, 
into that gap. Because by stepping into that gap and trying to do that, praying that God would meet you there with his power. You're saying, God, this is what I think I would be if I had your power. So I'm going to step into this. I need you to give me your power. I need your power to show up there. Friends, if you do that, God will meet you in that place. God will meet you in that place. This is one way to walk out faith. Because if you believe the gospel, if you believe that Jesus died and rose again to conquer sin, and that the power of Jesus is stronger than the power of sin, Sin. And so there's this dilemma that exists. 
But the dilemma is that God is committed to bringing an end to sin. But God also loves sinners. Okay? So God is committed to ending sin. But he doesn't want to end sin by ending sinners. Right? Sins come from people who sin. And God wants to end sin, but he loves sinners. And so God's righteousness, this is God's plan to end sin without ending sinners. Are you with me? How God can love the world and heal it of sin at the same time. Paul says that Jesus is the revelation of how God does this. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, this is how it works. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This promise to end sin without any sinners. This promise to love the world and fix the world in Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of how God fulfills his promises. That God loved the world so much. He loved sinners so much that he gave his son. God in Jesus took our sin and our judgment so that we could experience God's healing. When you believe, when you put your trust in Jesus, the righteousness of God becomes the righteousness from God. Right? This is a gift. God gifts his righteousness to you so that we become the righteousness of God. And so it's, we're talking about Jesus' perfection. Jesus was perfectly righteous in every way. In every way, whereas we all fall short of God's standards, right? Our relationships, our work, our life, our private life, our public, just in every area of life we struggle. We're not perfect. We fall short of God's standards. But Jesus, and this is why the 30 years of his life before he did anything were so important. Because before he did ever anything, he did everything. He knows exactly what it's like to be you. He knows exactly what it's like to be to suffer, to have limitations, to deal with temptation. And he did it perfectly. And his perfect obedience is the righteousness of God that God gives to those who believe. Jesus reveals the perfection of God and offers it as a gift if you believe. And so this righteousness that we receive from Christ, it covers you. It covers you like a robe, like a fresh coat of paint. Right? It, it completely changes you in terms of when God looks at you. He doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ covering you. And this is the extravagant grace of God, that you would accept folks like us, that you would forgive folks like us, because Jesus suffered for our sins. And so God covers us with his righteousness. But he doesn't just cover us. He actually, in one sense, like he takes the robe of righteousness, he opens it up, and then he deals with us on the inside. So he covers us with his righteousness, but then he also fills us with his righteousness. His righteousness enters 
gospel doesn't just give us power. It gives us a person. It gives us a person. So what does this mean? And it means that God is on your side. It means that when we look upward, we see him there. He's putting it through all our sin. It means that God has been faithful. Great is Paul ends verse 17 in a similar way that he ends verse 16. He says, This is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so this gospel, this good news, this announcement of what God has already done will give you power and righteousness if you believe. If you believe. So the question for us is will you trust this God? Will you trust Jesus? Some of you, this will be the first time. This will be your first time trusting in Jesus. The gospel invites you to trust in God who loved you so much that he came and died for your sins and rose so that you could be forgiven. He wants to bring his healing power into your life. Your cynicism is understandable. It's not the whole story. There's so much more. And Jesus can show you that. Many of you, like this, this is a call. This call to faith, this call to believe, is a call to grow in your faith. Right? Will you let Jesus' power farther into your life? What area of life do you want God's power? What area of life do you want His righteousness to fill you? What will you do in faith so that God may meet you there?
Here's what I think I would do if I had God's power. This is what I'm going to try to do. Please pray for me. In this, our lives would be transformed. And we would have personal testimonies of the rest of the story to offer people. When you share your story, sense that there's no way. They can try to undo it. 